Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we pray that you would do a truly significant and spectacular work. May every heart within the sound of my voice confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, would you give us ears to hear and then to accept the words of Jesus proclaimed in this parable. And we ask that you would do this so that your name would be honored and glorified significantly this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 4 this morning. Mark chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 20. Uh, 1 through 20 this morning. And uh, be looking at the parable of the soils. Uh, to this point in the gospel, I've tried to emphasize two words that I think capture Mark's main point, main lesson about Christ. These two words are authority and popularity. In chapters 1 and 2, we of course saw the authoritative claims of Jesus as the Son of God. We, uh, Pastor Paul read one of those texts to us where he said, follow me, and the disciples immediately followed him. We then saw that those claims, that claim uh, from Jesus... His authoritative nature brought great or attracted huge crowds to follow him. Yet in the last few sermons, we've noticed that among the crowds who were following Jesus, there were many responses that were really not very favorable at all. In particular, last week, we saw the response of Jesus' family to the actions of Jesus. You remember they came from Nazareth to Capernaum where Jesus was. They traveled over 30 miles, not to encourage Jesus, but to, as the text says, to seize him for they were saying that he was out of his mind. Some within Jesus' own family thought that he was crazy. And so they went to seize him. Of course, Jesus does not go out to his family at that point. And they were Following in line, their rejection mirrored the rejection of the scribes. The scribes were saying, he has Beelzebul. That is, by the ruler of the demons, Jesus is performing these miracles or exorcisms. The scribes were saying that Jesus was possessed by Satan. and That Satan was leading him to do these things. That follows directly in line with the way the Pharisees and the Herodians had responded to Jesus. Do you remember the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3, there was a big controversy about Jesus and his disciples and the Sabbath. The Pharisees and the Herodians were asking him questions about their failure to observe the Sabbath properly. But then the Pharisees and Herodians respond by breaking the Sabbath themselves. in scheming to destroy Christ. See, they had murderous thoughts and plots on the Sabbath itself 
So we see all of these responses to Jesus. Well, we might wonder why people would respond so negatively to Jesus. And I think that that's what the first part of chapter 4 is about. I think in chapter 4, we get Jesus' answer to that question. Why were so many people rejecting him? And Jesus' answer to that question will not only help Mark's Roman readers who themselves are being rejected for the name of Christ, I think it will help us too. So as we get into the sermon, I, I ask you about your, uh, to consider your own witness for a moment. Uh, have you ever shared the gospel with someone before and had that person respond poorly to the way that you presented the gospel to them or respond poorly to the gospel itself? I mean, it can be unsettling. I can't tell you how many times in my own Christian life that when, when that happens, I've got a go-to verse. A go-to verse in New Testament, Paul's letters, he says, uh, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Aren't you thankful for assurances like that in the Bible? However, it can be unsettling, and we might ask ourselves, why? Why, why are these people that we love or we care about enough to share the gospel, why, are, why do they seem so disinterested in the gospel? I think the text will answer that question for us as well. And so uh, to learn more about why people respond this way to the gospel, we learn from the parable of the sower in Christ's words here. This lengthy parable breaks into four parts. I want to begin by looking at verses 1 and 2 and the setting of the parable. We'll just do it quickly. Look at verse 1. It says, again, he, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat it, in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching, he said to them. So here we see the setting of the parable. Jesus is teaching from a boat near the shore of a lake, and Mark says that Jesus' teaching takes the form of parables. We, if you remember, uh, last week we said in chapter 3 that Jesus had already begun using parables. He used a parable of a kingdom and a house in that chapter as he was dealing with the scribes. And I described parables as illustrative stories meant to conceal truth from disobedient people and meant to uncover truth to those who are genuinely followers of Christ. And so here Jesus begins again using parables... And now we begin to see that he's doing so so that the outsiders, those who do not have faith in Christ, will be separated from the insiders, those who believe Christ genuinely and profoundly. That's the setting. So Jesus is by uh, the, the lake. He's on a boat, his mobile pulpit, and he's using parables. Then in verses 3 through 9, we see the content of the parables, and I want to read through these verses and just make a few comments. Of course, this is an illustration from agriculture, but look at verse 3. It says, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. 
Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So as we look at the parable itself, the content of the parable itself, it starts with two very strong imperatives. In some Bible translations, they put them in one word. I prefer to do it as the ESV here has done and put them in two words. The two words could be translated, listen and look. And I like that translation because at the very beginning, Jesus is kind of setting the the course for the way the whole parable is going to go. Later on, he's going to talk about people who have ears but don't hear and who have eyes but who don't see. And so right at the beginning of the parable, he says, listen, you know, use your ears, look, use your eyes. Jesus is basically saying, pay close attention to what I have to say in this parable. He then gives the parable of a farmer or a sower who sows seed in four different types of soil. And many of us have heard this illustration, this parable throughout the years, but we'll just go quickly through these verses to make sure that we fully grasp what Jesus is saying. He first talks about soil that is what I would call hard-packed soil. The sower here is scattering seeds onto this hard-packed soil near a road or a path. I think the main part of verse 4, as you look at it, can be found in the progression of the verbs that you would find in the text. I mean, the verbs progress from seed fell, birds came, and devoured. And so since the seed was exposed on the top of this hard-packed soil along the road, birds came and eat it before it could even begin to germinate. That's hard-packed soil, verse 4. Then there's shallow soil in verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, we learn of seed that fell on a different type of soil, rocky ground. That is, as I studied the text this week, I think it's, it's soil where there is an underlying bedrock just a few inches below the topsoil. And so seed in this type of soil springs up quickly because it's warmer, the, the, the soil is warmer, but soon after it springs up, the sun comes and scorches it because the plant is unable to draw moisture from the root system below. That leads us to the third type of soil, thorny soil, in verse 7. The seed is sown among soil that is infested with thorns. By the way, if you want an example of all these types of soil, just come to my house. Uh, I'll show you all of this stuff. We've got a flower bed I'm thinking of right now. Thorny soil. This plant grows up to a mature crop. It somehow survives being infested with the thorns but it competes with the thorns for nutrients. And so the text says, no grain is ever produced. So one of the things I noticed about these three soils is that there's progression here in their failure in the process. The failure always is coming a little bit later in the process. With the first type of soil, it fails before there's even germination. The birds come and snatch it away before the seed can do anything. Uh, The second type of soil, soon after germination, it fails. And then this last one, it's at harvest time. And so with crops, uh, I would suspect that farmers are looking for grain, not mere survival. 
okay, unlike some of us uh, non-professional farmers. Okay, if my plant survives, I think I'd be happy. But if your livelihood depends on it, you're looking for fruit. And this third type of soil produces no fruit at all. Finally, then in verse 8, we see some seed falls on good soil. And again, following the progression of the verbs in verse 8 is, is really clear. It fell and produced. Produced abundantly. And so this is the content of the parable, the soils. To this, Jesus attaches a very strong final warning in verse 9. He said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's important for the crowds to pay attention to what Jesus is teaching from this boat by the lake. Get these four soils, pay attention. That leads us then, though, to a, a, a separate section from verses 10 through 12 that I call the purpose for this parable. And so I want you to look with me in verse 10. It says, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, To you have been given the secrets or the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that, and pay close attention to what Jesus says, listen, you've got ears to hear, listen, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they turn and be forgiven. So Jesus here states the reason he's using this parable in a negative way in the text, he says he puts his teaching in parable form so that outsiders may see but not perceive and hear but not understand. If that's not shocking to us enough as modern readers, as we consider the purpose of Jesus, he says, lest they should turn and be forgiven. I mean, at first look, it appears as if, as one author says, the purpose of the parables and the deeds of Jesus is to prevent insight and repentance on the part of those outside. One of the questions we come to in verse 12 is, how could that be true of Jesus? I mean, why would Jesus ever teach in such a way so that someone would not be forgiven? I mean, why would he purposefully teach in a confusing manner? Something interesting going on in this text. Matter of fact, many people throughout the years have come to this text and they basically said this. They said, Jesus could not have meant what he said. I think one of our failures is we come to texts like verse 12 and we bring our preconceived ideas about the nature of God into the passage. And then we try to make the text fit our views of God. Instead, we're text people, right? We must deal with the text. Holy Spirit-inspired text. God-breathed text and bring our views of Jesus and God under or in line with the Scripture. I think that the proper answer to this question, why would Jesus speak in parables, lies in the context of this passage, and I want to give you two points of explanation to help you with verse 12, because Jesus takes this very important aside, and he says, I want to tell you why I'm using parables. 
Okay, and so I think there are two indications in the text of what Jesus is doing and this negative purpose for using them. First, it appears that Jesus is teaching in this way so that only some will not understand what he's saying. As a matter of fact, in verse 10, he says that there were some who gathered around him. It says Christ was willing to explain the parable and what it meant to his disciples and to some others who were near him uh, who were asking. And so uh, the context here reveals that Jesus is willing to explain more about the parables, but there are others who will be blinded to it. And so in, in order to identify this group, we look at, especially at the end of verse 12. So looking at the end of verse 12, and we look at what parables will prevent these people from doing. It says, lest they should turn and be forgiven. You see that in your Bible? Lest they should turn and be forgiven. I want to ask you a question. Do either of those results sound familiar to you? You're thinking about the greater context of this passage, and you can actually look ahead or behind. I'll, tell you, I'll give you a hint. Look, look at something we've already covered. Can you remember a place in the immediate context where someone committed a sin for which there would never be forgiveness? Remember that? Go to chapter 3, and I want to look with you at verses 28 and 29. So, I think what Jesus is intending is he has people like the scribes in mind who were saying he has Beelzebul, he is Satan. Look at verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. That's the same exact word. All sins will be forgiven to children, man, and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has circle the word, forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So in my Bible, I've circled the word for uh, forgiven and forgiveness in verses 28 and 29. I draw an arrow over to chapter 4, verse 12, to the word shall never and be forgiven. Be forgiven. I think, unfortunately, though, most commentators and preachers and believers miss this connection Although an alert reader will pick up on this. You see this word forgiveness repeated. And I, I think that then what, what, what might be happening in verse 12 is it, it seems best to see that one of the reasons that Christ spoke in parables was to hide truth from scribes and opponents like them who had adamantly rejected his ministry. William Lane, although he misses the connection with the words forgiveness, I think he describes it, the context where he says, this text, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, is properly understood only in the context of the contemporaneous situation set forth in chapter 3, where unbelief and opposition to Jesus is blatant. In other words, I think what's going on here is Jesus is being opposed just about in every way. Remember all those groups you looked at, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the scribes, in his own family, we're saying he was out of his mind. And so Jesus responds as a form of punishment, especially to the scribes, to people like them, by giving them parables. Giving them parables, veiled analogies meant to confuse them and to confirm them in their sin. So uh, first, Jesus teaches like this so that only some will be confused. 
people like the scribes. But then secondly, the, the other way it helped to answer this is I think Jesus might be teaching in a confused, or in a confused manner like this or a veiled manner like this because uh, partial hardening was occurring among the Jewish people in response to Jesus. At this point in the story, we're seeing more and more Jewish people start responding to Jesus by rejecting him and turning against him. We don't have the time to turn there in our Bibles, but you could go back to Romans 9 through 11. You could have the Apostle Paul tell you a little bit more about the fact that this reaction came from the Jewish people. A partial hardening came so that salvation would come to the nations, the Gentiles as well. You say, well, where in this text do you see that that sort of thing might be in the process of occurring? And I I ask you to go in your Bibles again to verse 12. So you look down in your Bible and you're looking at this purpose. So Jesus is speaking in parables with this purpose so that they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand lest they turn and be forgiven. Now I wish that in in, in our Bibles there'd be another set of quotation marks that would help us here for Verse 12 is a quote from Jesus. However, everything in verse 12 other than the words so that are also found in the Old Testament scripture. And so you could put a single quotation mark after so that and run it the whole way to the end of the text for what Jesus is doing here is he is quoting the Old Testament scripture. He's quoting from a book called Isaiah in the Old Testament, and a chapter that's quite familiar, chapter 6. Matter of fact, I want you to turn back there for a moment. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. I'm suggesting that Jesus is using his Bible here, the Old Testament, to prove some things about what is going on with these people. Isaiah chapter 6, and uh, perhaps... Uh, you know a little bit about the book of Isaiah. I'll just tell you that in the first five chapters, you have a description of the many sins of Judah, their idolatry and wickedness. So God responds in chapter six by appointing a preacher, Isaiah, and he gives him a powerful vision, a heavenly vision. Ironically, he opens the eyes of Isaiah so that he could see God and so that he could hear him. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him, that's God, stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So Judah has been wicked. They're idolatrous. God appoints and empowers a prophet, a preacher, by the name of Isaiah, touches his lips so that what comes out of his mouth will be from God. 
And notice what he says. Verse eight. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And he said, God said, go and say to this people, quote, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Notice, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, could be translated, and be forgiven. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So the children of Judah have been wicked. God appoints a preacher, and his message is one of severe judgment. So severe, no one's going to turn and be forgiven. Isaiah asks, how long will this go on? And God says, until it's all completely destroyed. So go back to the New Testament, Mark chapter 4. It's it's verses 9 and 10. There are sections of verses 9 and 10 that Jesus quotes to explain why he's using parables. So, just like the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet was ordained by God as a preacher to proclaim judgment, so Jesus is using parables to proclaim judgment to people like the scribes. It's veiled, it's confusing to them because it will confirm them in their sins and judgment. This leads then to verses 13 through 20 and the interpretation of the parable. I think we can go through this quickly. This final section in the interpretation, we see some very interesting things as well. Let me read to you verses 13 through 20. It says, he said to them, do, not, do, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Here Jesus starts in verses 13 and 14 with a mild rebuke of his disciples and those who were near him. He says, do you not understand this parable? And if you can't get this one, you're not gonna get any of the parables. Since this parable is a parable about interpreting parables. And so Jesus then in grace teaches those groups around him the true meaning. He says, a sower goes out to sow the word. The seed is the word. That is the word that Jesus is preaching and teaching to them. And Jesus' teached word 
lands on one of four types of soil. These four soils all picture human response. The first soil is the hard-packed soil by the road. It represents some people like the scribes who hear Jesus' words but are hardened to it. And that's when Jesus lets us know that the bird was a metaphor for a villain by the name of Satan. Actually translated, you could translate it, the Satan. But then the Satan comes along and he snatches up the word so that these people in the hardened path would, with this sort of uh, heart, would never be sensitive to Jesus' proclamation. I think that's perhaps true even today. There are some people who hear the preached word, and for them, it is nothing more than parables. They remain on the outside, and the scriptures proclaimed to them hold no interest whatsoever to them. To some, the preached word is just about as engaging as a steward or a stewardess's instructions on a flight. Can you relate? You know, someone's up there saying something. You, you even have ears to hear it, but you have no idea what they say. That's the way some people respond to the word of Jesus, the word of Christ. They might hear the words, they might see stuff going on, but nothing. Because Satan comes along and he snatches it away. And so, as a moment of application, I would say, men and women, if, if that's not you, might I encourage you to praise the name of the living God this morning? And praise be to God. And blessed be the name of the Lord, because left to ourselves, we are dead in trespasses and sin. We are blind. We are deaf to hear the words of Christ. So this text says there's, there are certain people like the scribes who, when they hear the word, they immediately fail. There are others who fall shortly after they face persecution, verses 16 and 17. We won't read them again, but he describes the rocky soil. The rocky soil represents the, uh, those for whom the message sounds good and is welcomed with joy, but it never penetrates beyond a superficial level. And the text says that immediately after tribulation or persecution comes to these type of people on behalf of their commitment to Christ, they fail. These people look committed until difficulties come and then they reveal that they are not genuine followers of Jesus. He then, in verses 18 and 19, explains that the, the third soil represents others who will fall eventually. Look at verse 18. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Here, the thorny soil represents many among the crowds who failed to bear fruit for Christ. They're like soil infested with thorns. And here the text specifically says that they respond positively 
to the word initially, but then fail when they get hit with three things. The cares of this world distract them and choke out Christ's word. I think the second one is, to me this week as I study, was especially powerful. The deceitfulness of riches sneak in and choke out Christ's word in their lives. One commentator described it this way. He says, deceitfulness is a particularly powerful term conveying here, as in other New Testament uses, the sense of deception, even enticement, which threatens to to seduce disciples from their true allegiance. So one one of my fears is that for years we have heard the parable of the soils and we hear it like a, you know, kind of a cute children's story. We heard it in our children's Bible study years ago. We might, you know, maybe we, we remember bringing home the styrofoam little cup with a little potted soil in there and the challenge to be good soil. And we think of it as like this, this, this really familiar story, but this parable is meant to be a strong warning to those who hear Jesus. For instance, there are many, many young people in churches today who will be deceived by Satan. They're being lured away and seduced by desire for earthly riches. And so I ask you, young person, do you spend more time dreaming about houses and things and money and pleasure than you do learning Christ's word and obeying and submitting to them? Over the years, I have seen scores of young people who play the parts while they're in their parents' home only to then chase earthly treasures and fall away. The word of Christ that has been sowed in them is choked out by the deceitfulness, the seduction earthly riches. I think even in my own extended family, I could tell the story of relatives my age. We went to the same church. We had the same privileges, but most of them have walked away from their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. All but maybe one or two. I tell the story of young people who were in my youth group in Crosslands, West Virginia, young men who surrendered to pastoral ministry, to preaching ministry, I took him, and I, we, we went and did, we did Bible studies, we did discipleship, and now he is not a follower of Jesus Christ. The deceitfulness of riches sprung in. I've also seen spouses do their part. They play the game. They go to church to appease their spouse or their children but the soil is so full of thorns that there's absolutely no fruit in their life. They are not genuine followers of Christ. They're deceived. Unfortunately, I believe hell will be filled with these sorts of people who bear bear absolutely no fruit for the name and cause of Jesus Christ. And so Christ's words are far from a children's lesson meant to entertain. Christ's words 
are meant to produce a collision between his hearers and truth. So if, so if you have ears to hear this morning, I trust as we consider these soils, you'll think through that. He says also their desire for other things distract them. They substitute the things, the other things, the things of man in place of the things of God. As one commentator says, he says, their present life is more important to them than the life to come. And stuff is more important than the Savior. And so I ask you, do you desire Christ, his word, or stuff? Whether we realize it or not, right now, I think that there are multiple things going on in the hearts of people who are under the sound of my preaching. There are things going on in good soil and bad soil. Thorns are being cultivated in hearts throughout the week. I think soon, some superficial commitments to Christ will wane. And like a person walking down a road that comes to a fork, tries to take both paths, eventually that person will see, I can't, I cannot follow God's things and my things, and they will choose my things. There is one last response, though, and it's it's encouraging one. Some will bear fruit. Verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Finally, there's good soil as well, and this represents people who rightly hear Christ's words and accept it. Again, the progression of the verbs is very telling to me. It's they hear, they accept it or receive it, and they bear it, fruit. The identifying mark then of these followers is that they bear fruit for Christ. And although the text doesn't tell us what bearing fruit looks like, I think we can surmise that their lives reflect the change that the word of Christ has created in their lives and they now point others to Christ in the way that they live. And so by God's grace, I pray that our church would be filled with people who have good soil by his grace to proclaim the name of Christ. I ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads and close your eyes as I pray for us to close. As we do this, I want to give you a quiet moment here for reflection. All week I've been praying that God would do something supernatural, something spiritual beyond the ability of of a human being to contrive. I ask you to examine the soil of your own heart. Are you an insider or an outsider? Are you more attracted to stuff than to to riches than you are to Christ's words? If for you the answer is stuff and you have ears to hear the preached word this morning, I encourage you to repent. If you have borne no fruit for Christ, Turn from your other things to God. 
if you do religious things to appease your parents or your spouse, turn now to God. Repent of these things and believe that Christ is God's victorious son who defeated death and hell for you. It's my prayer that your ears will be open to receive the word. Perhaps others can point to early growth and some fruit in their lives. But they have let their guard down and the thorns have crept into your life. Repent of those things as well and trust the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I do not know for whom this sermon was intended. It's for all of us, I know. But perhaps there are some people here who are represented by one of the first three types of soil, those who are not genuine, who bear no fruit for Jesus. Lord, you know my heart is burdened and grieved for perhaps some young people who are, are just following along with the system. But who would not say, Jesus is better. More than all riches, Jesus is better. More than all comfort, Jesus is better. For any victory. So Lord, I pray that you would work in the hearts of any young person here, who's never believed in Jesus themselves. I pray for any spouse who has come, perhaps maybe for even years, to appease their wife or their husband, but who is not genuine, who bears no fruit. Lord, would you please give them ears to hear the word. Receive it and bear fruit. In Jesus' name we pray.